Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org. Well, please open your Bibles to uh, the book of Matthew, where we've been. Um, as we started this series um, in the Sermon on the Mount a few weeks ago. Remember, um, as, as the chapter begins in chapter 5, uh, Jesus, um, we, we see Jesus in, encountering crowds. So seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he just sat down, his disciples came to him. So remember the context. He, Jesus had been healing lots of people, and his ministry is expanding, and they're all expecting him to usher in uh, an earthly kingdom, usher in, like, take over, get rid of the Romans. That's what they're expecting. And so Jesus comes up on a mountain with his disciples. He sits down, and his disciples come to him, and he begins to teach them. And he begins to teach them about the kingdom. And that's what the Sermon of the Mount is about. It's about the kingdom and how, the, how he wants them to direct their hearts to the kingdom. And remember, we started in the Beatitudes last week. We started with, blessed are uh, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And as we talked about blessing, we learned that blessing isn't about the things that we just get that make us happy that are temporary. We talked about blessing being a declaration that Jesus is making over those who are found in him, those who are our followers of Jesus, those who are found in Christ. So as we abide in Christ, we, we will see the, the fruit of these things that we're going to be talking about increase in our life, and we'll be ever more aware of the blessings that Jesus is talking about here. And as we come to our text this morning, as we've already read in the worship set, we're going to be talking about blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And as I've studied about these two verses this week, I feel very deficient. I'm feeling the weight that we often feel when we come to the Beatitudes of, I don't measure up, and and so I think what we should do first is just go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. So Father, would you, would you open our eyes to see how, how these verses really point us to Christ, the one who did it perfectly, even when we don't do it perfectly and we strive to ask for your help for us to see the sufficiency of Christ as we study these verses this morning. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the two verses that we studied last week matter. Like we talked about last week, the Beatitudes aren't like when you go through the Proverbs. When you read Proverbs, you can read 28 verses, and it seems like 28 things that don't relate to the other thing, because Proverbs is a book of wisdom that was given from a father to his son, and they were written in a way that could be memorized easily in the original language. So they just kind of pop around sometimes. But in the Beatitudes, there is a progression. It matters to understand being poor in spirit. It matters to understand what it means to mourn over our sin as we come to 
blessed are the weak, so that we understand the meek. Because oftentimes, when I've heard descriptions of meek, they just kind of start with meek. This is what meek means. This is what we need to do, how we need to go. But it's really important for us to understand, starting with humbling ourselves before God, understanding there is there's a gap between us and him and that Jesus bridges that gap. And when we trust in him, we have certainty that we will be in the kingdom of heaven. And when we see that distance, we mourn over our sin and there's comfort because Jesus has forgiven our sins. As we sang about this morning, he's washed it white as snow. Those are important things to have on your heart to pursue meekness, to under stand what meekness is. And there's a pushback in our culture because the, the culture doesn't say blessed are the meek. But Jesus invites us to rethink what that looks like because the culture would tell us to be assertive, to press forward. Um, the culture would say blessed are the proud and intimidating because they're the ones that are going to get theirs. The culture might push and say, hey, look at that savvy businessman, or look at that successful businesswoman. The world seems to push us to be strong, self-sufficient, overbearing sometimes, to be capable, to be aggressive, to be ambitious, because if you're those things, then you're going to achieve things. Maybe if you even need to step on people as you get to that achievement, that's, those are the people that are going to get theirs. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, the theologian, said, uh, the world thinks in terms of strength and power, of ability, self-assurance, and aggressiveness. That is the world's idea of conquest and possession. The more you assert yourself and express yourself, the more you organize and manifest your powers and ability, and the, the more you are likely to succeed and to get on. And remember, the original hearers, those that are gathering around, flocking to Jesus, are thinking about military conquest. Rather than let's go with our strength and might, let's see God work. If you think about the story of Gideon in the book of judges. What happens in that story? They're going to be taking over Midian and, and have conquest. They probably have some 30,000 plus troops to go. And God says, no, I, I don't want you to use all those troops because you're going to trust in yourself. So everybody who's afraid to go, just tell them to go home. And two thirds of the army goes home. Okay, we got 30,000 strong, 32,000 strong, two-thirds go home. We have 10,000 left. That would be discouraging, but then, okay, 10,000. 10,000 is still a lot. Maybe we have a chance. He's like, no, no, no. Um, actually, go and have everybody take a drink at the river. Okay, take a drink at the river and just watch them how they drink. Some people are going to drink by cupping their hands and putting water to their mouth and drinking it, and other people, they're just going to stick their face in the water and lap it up like a dog. Just watch what they do. Okay, what did they do? Okay, well, like most people did this, cupped their hands, and uh, 300 guys, they, they were lapping like a dog. Well, take the 300 guys. So as you read the story, God uses 300 men to conquer Midian. He 
He gets the glory. And we could go through story after story in the Old Testament that just testifies to this reality. There's not an exaltation of the strength of man. Not that man doesn't have strength, not that we shouldn't pursue ever getting strength, but that's not the place of glory. Blessed are the meek. So what is meekness? Well, meekness is not weakness. It's not cowardice or spinelessness or being timid or lazy. It's not, I'm going to get peace at any price. It's not being indecisive or wishy-washy. In, in classical Greek, this word was often used to describe tame, tame animals. So power under control. But let me clarify. I don't, I don't mean power under restraint. The picture isn't one of like, like I've got this power. And just, just hold me back. I got it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let loose. Or it's not the picture of, you know, you, you, you've met someone whose dog that might be a, a bit more aggressive than others, right? And, they're, and, and they're, you're wondering who the master is because they're holding onto the leash because the dog, and we kind of think, well, power, power under control, that's that. No, that's power under restraint. They're holding it back. No, this is, this is having full power, but not, not exercising it. The best picture of this is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. So after, after he's praying in agony and, and his friends who are with him, they fall asleep, uh, Judas comes and sells him out and brings the Roman guards and kisses him and the Roman guards are there and getting ready to take him away. And the strength that pops up, one of the disciples is like, no, we're gonna take him. This is Jesus. He's gonna usher in the kingdom. He cuts the ear off of one of the guards and Jesus stops everything and says, cut that out. And, and he touches the ear of the guard and he heals the ear of the guard. Everyone present had to be like, all right, this, this is the guy with the power. Uh, the sword I am carrying in my sheath isn't going to do diddly squat to a guy that can touch someone's ear and it grows back or puts it back on. I don't exactly know what that happened, what it looked like. I just know his ear was off and then he had an ear. Everyone knows who's in, tr- in control in that moment. Heals him, gives correction to his disciples, and willingly goes. He could have he could have done away with the whole cohort that was there. That's what power under control looks like. So what does it look like for us? Because we don't uphold the universe by the word of our power. What, is it, what does meekness look like for us? Meekness is, is one who knows their spiritual poverty, who, who starts in the place of knowing their position before God and lets that guide their behavior. They, they don't think more highly of themselves than they ought to think. And so, therefore, they don't use the power that they have for their selfish purposes. It's it's under control. It's submitted to 
the will of God. We're told, express yourself, assert yourself, be true to yourself. Jesus would encourage us to empty ourselves rather than than assertiveness, an absence of self-assertion, an absence of pushing ourselves forward, of being aware that if God has given us power or strength in any way, it is to be used for God's glory, to strengthen others, to protect others, or sometimes to not be used because we're entrusting ourselves to the Father. Dietrich Bonhoeffer described meekness this way. He said, when reproached, they hold their peace. When treated with violence, they endure it patiently. When men drive them from their presence, they yield their ground. They will not go to law to defend their rights or make a scene when they suffer injustice, nor do they insist on their legal rights. They are determined to leave their rights to God alone. They show by every word and gesture that they do not belong to this earth. It's it's otherworldly. It's one who understands the blessing. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. There, there's not a need for us to inherit the earth now. We don't have to grasp at everything to achieve all that there is here, to achieve peace at any price, to achieve wealth at any price, to receive comfort at any price, or health at any price. We, there's a promise. We will inherit the earth. It's going to happen, so there's not a need for us to assert ourselves. Now, that doesn't mean that we should never make an appeal in the place in which we live. There are laws for us in the place that we live, at least for now, where you can make appeals, but that appeal should look like you don't belong here. should look like you belong to a different kingdom. There should be an aroma of Christ that that others can see and smell and experience when we engage with those things. We don't grasp at the power. We don't force it. Grace and godliness should go. In fact, if you encounter someone whom you disagree with, it would be my prayer that they would be more aware of the aroma of Christ than they do of the fact that you disagree. That's the picture that we have. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Pursuit of God, said this. He said, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God has declared him to be, but paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is, in the sight of God, more important than angels. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him, and he has stopped caring 
So we don't even have to put ourselves forward. We don't have to put, put on your best self so that everybody can see. We don't have to spend endless hours making us out to be something else because we have to put ourselves, because no, we know, we know where we stand before God because we are poor in spirit. We know what the cross has said about us because Jesus had to go there on our behalf. So we don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to, to justify ourselves. I, I feel that. This is something I've had to confess this week where maybe you're in a context where it, it seems like someone's being critical of you or, or, or maybe somebody is just straight up being critical of you and there's that temptation of, well, hey, 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 didn't you notice this about me? Or didn't you notice I, I did this really good thing? Because we know we will inherit the earth, we don't, we don't have to earn anything. We don't have to achieve anything. We don't have to achieve the acceptance of others. Because we know that as we've come to Christ, we have all the approval that we need. Because God sees us through the lens of Jesus' perfect life. That's all the approval that we need. So we don't even have to assert ourselves, not just about the power that we have. So how do we become meek? How, how do we do this? Well, we must first understand this is a gift of the Spirit of God. This is a gift of the Holy Spirit. We're going to just kind of generate this and pump this up. We might be able to do it on the outside and kind of force it, but really, we need God. We need God's help. And we will get some of that help as we start with the first two Beatitudes. As we understand being poor in spirit, understanding our place before God and grieving over our sin, it, it really does lead into meekness. Because we don't put ourselves forward, we put Jesus forward. When we see all that he's done for us, we're like, yeah, this is what you've given me. I, I don't want to, I don't dare use this for my own selfish gain. Let, uh, let me use it for theirs. I don't have to put myself forward because Jesus put himself on the cross. So, so the, the way to do it is, is being aware of that and yoking ourselves to Jesus, being tied to Christ, looking to Christ, because Jesus is the place where we find meekness. Jesus, Jesus was a lion in different matters of faith. He rebuked the Pharisees. He overturned the tables when they weren't doing, selling things in the temple where they should have been praying. He did correct the disciples on occasion when they weren't, and it seemed to be frequently. But Jesus did not retaliate, nor was he vindictive. When he was confronted by Pilate, he, he didn't smite Pilate. He was, he was quiet. He appeared weak, but he was anything but weak. At any moment, he could have commanded a myriad of angels to come and take care of the whole thing. When he's on the cross, he looks at those that uh, have tortured him, those that have inflicted pain on him, and he says, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even after he's 
gone to the grave and resurrected from the dead, he encounters Peter who had denied him and and run when he could have been there supporting him, and he restores Peter, and he says, no, I want you to feed my sheep, and he sets him forward. We look to Christ. In 1 Peter, it says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was there deceit found in his mouth. While he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself himself to him who judges justly. He continued to entrust himself. He continued to entrust himself all the way up to the point of death. He was in control all the way. Some will be like, no, they killed him. What does it say? Do Do you remember what it says while he's on the cross, when he dies? What's the phrase that's used? He gave up his spirit. He gave up his spirit. He was in control, has the keys of death and hell. So even at that point, he's in complete control, and he willingly entrusts himself to God. That's the picture. We entrust ourselves to the Father. So the one who's in complete control, friends, we can come to him. He says, come to me all who are labor, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So when we even think about this, we can sometimes feel the weight. We can feel the failure. The, the, the answer is go to Christ. Look to Christ. Yoke yourself with Christ. Christ. Be more intimate with Christ. If you've never trusted in Christ, he says, come. He says, come. And you can come today by responding in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you're watching from home or whether you're here. And and the blessing is that we inherit the earth. As we yoke ourselves to Christ, as we grow in this, it's Growth is a process. It doesn't happen like that. The disciples didn't hear this on the mount, and then all of a sudden they were perfect in it. Right? That There's lots of correction, adjustment, reteaching, teaching again. Right? It happens throughout the Gospels. And that's what our Christian life is like. So as we seek to pursue meekness, well, if we're aware of harshness in our life or grasping because we need to be first or put ourselves forward or we're aware we might be vengeful or even uncontrolled. Well, just let that give us pause. Let that give us pause and be reminded of Christ and go to Christ and, and, and experience the benefit of the inheritance that comes because of Christ. So, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus causes us to rethink what it looks like to have power and utilize it. And then he goes to verse 6, and he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. True satisfaction comes when we pursue righteousness. 
we're definitely, there's definitely hungering and thirsting going on in our day. It's everywhere. There's all different means. But unfortunately, we, we tend to substitute words in this. Instead of going, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, rather than exploring the depths of, well, what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We, we kind of just let's, just, let's just insert something else. Blessed are those who pursue happiness. We kind of flip it. Blessed are, rather, rather than blessed are those who hunger and thirst, we say, well, we're going to hunger and thirst for blessedness. I'm going to hunger for my marriage to be better. Not that it's not wrong, certainly, to want your marriage to grow, but yeah, I'm pursuing that. I will be happy if I pursue this. I'm going to be happy because my spouse is going to change. Or I'm going to be happy when my parents get it. I'm going to be happy when my kids start to do what they're supposed to do. I'm going to be happy when I get the right job or the right title. The list goes on. But whatever we substitute for righteousness, we don't get the blessing. We don't ultimately get. Maybe we feel it. It might be short-lived. But the reality is when we, when we hunger and thirst for blessedness, we experience a, a different statement, which is more like disappointed are those who hunger and thirst for whatever makes them happy. For they will never be satisfied. If we hunger and thirst for whatever just makes us happy, I guarantee you're, you're never going to be satisfied. You're always going to want more. I could have brought out a box of donuts. Or for the healthy folk, I'd have bought a bag of broccoli, right? Whatever, you know, it delivers, different things deliver for different people. But you know, if I had it and you just start digging into it right now, in a few hours, you're going to need more. You're going to want more, even at that level. You know that whenever you've achieved whatever you think you want to achieve, it it just doesn't deliver. Why do you think there's some football players that just won't quit? Well, don't you have enough rings? It's not enough because it's never going to satisfy because it's never been promised. What's promised that's going to satisfy? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for rethinking what ambition is. Jesus is inviting us to rethink where, where we find our satisfaction. The verse begs us to ask the questions, what do you long for most in your life? Where, where do I expect to find my satisfaction? The verse, the verse challenges us, but it, it also reminds us. It reminds us of the day when we came to faith in Christ. We resonate with it. And we're like, yeah, we want, we want to do that because it reminds us of that day when we came to Christ and it seems like we couldn't get enough of Jesus. I remember those days in, in college when that's when I came to Christ. I just wanted more of his word. I felt like conviction was coming left and right and I needed to grow. 
I was throwing away my cassette tapes. I, you might not know what that is. Some of you are younger. It'd be kind of like deleting your playlist from your old life. But not quite the same. There's just something about throwing away a cassette tape or an eight track if you're old enough. But there was this, no, like we couldn't get enough of Jesus. We wanted to be whatever. If there was a prayer meeting, we wanted to be in the prayer meeting. I remember friends of mine, we were in college and we signed up to pray at the prayer room of our church from three in the morning to five in the morning once a week. Who does that in college? It's because Jesus had changed us and there's this, there was just this hunger that just happened because we tasted and saw that he was good and that was the picture. And you've experienced that. Even if you find yourself in the place where time has deadened your senses. Maybe the realities of life have just distracted you for things of lesser devotion. But as Jesus called them, Jesus calls us to recalibrate, not to feel condemned, but to invite us to see him afresh to invite us to experience afresh what the psalmist writes in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my soul for you, O God, my soul thirsts for the living God. There's a desperation that's there, a, a real hunger that's there. A picture of um, theologian J.N. Darby, he's, he talked about the the prodigal son, and he said, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what is in God's heart toward me. Get that picture. Hunger is to get, not, not just, we, we got a hunger so that we can kind of pull ourselves up and just kind of earn something. No, like when we get hungry is when we, re, we, we get where God's heart is for us. Because the prodigal son, when he was hungry, what did he do? He went to feed on husks. He was eating among the pigs or whatever. But when he was starving, he turned to his father. And remember, what did he discover when he turned to his father? Not one who was like, you know, you're going to have to just buck up and, and earn your keep back. No, his father came running to him. And that's the picture that we should have, even as we experience conviction uh, from this passage. And it's, it's hard to think about hungering because we don't really hunger much. I mean, this morning I woke up thirsty and there were any number of receptacles in my house in which I could satisfy that thirst. The sink in my bathroom, the water bottle that was sitting next to my bed or the sink in the kitchen or any number, like I could satisfy that. Oh, I'm a little hungry? Well, I have a refrigerator and I have a pantry and I, you know, I have some snacks squirreled away next to my office. They're, they're approved snacks. They're not hidden snacks. They're out for all to see. But you know, I've just, I don't ever have to be hungry. That's why it can be helpful sometimes to just to have a practice of fasting. And we'll talk more about that later on as we're in the Sermon on the Mount. But we just, we just don't hunger. But I experience seeing that when I go to Liberia and I interact with families that eat once a day you interact with the family that decides we're going to feed these kids today and we're going to feed these kids tomorrow because that's all we've got. 
they get it. And the, the original hearers, they got it. When Jesus talked about hungering and thirsting, they completely understood that. And so when Jesus talks about satisfaction could be had, their ears are perked. So may we, we have our ears perked to where real satisfaction comes from, friends, and not let things distract us. Not that we can't enjoy these good things. I don't think we should stick ashes in our food every time we eat just because we shouldn't enjoy them. No, I think we should enjoy the things that God has given us. We just don't want those good things to distract us from what is better. And let's understand that when we, we hunger for righteousness, we understand a few things. Hungering for righteousness understands what justification is. And what justification means is that we, we are just before God because of what Jesus has done. He's fulfilled all the righteousness. We aren't, we aren't hungering to do this so that we can earn God's favor. We know we have God's favor. When Jesus went to the cross, he said, it is finished and it's done. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So we're not hungering to earn favor. We're hungering because we're in this place where we're not yet fully experiencing all that God has. We're waiting. We're in the already. We're already, we're already in the kingdom. We're already in the family, but not yet. We've not yet experienced it. So this, this period of time that's called sanctification, in which we're growing. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So there's a, we're being conformed. There's a process of growth. So if you notice that that there's a growth, that's, that's encouraging. That's a good thing. If you notice, like, there's absolutely none. You actually have no desire to live rightly what you want. I say, do I, do I trust in Christ? Have I trusted in Christ? If you kind of feel like this low-grade sense of conviction or guilt when you read these, that, that's actually a good sign. That means God is at work in your heart. He doesn't, he doesn't want you to feel Guilt, he wants you to feel conviction, but right away he wants you to know and understand forgiveness. And, and there's a hungering that's going to be there that's it's not satisfied. It says we will be satisfied. We do experience some of that satisfaction now, but ultimately we'll experience it in eternity. And so there should be a hungering that should always be there. I mean, even Paul, the great preacher, said in Philippians 3, he said, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Why? Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Even in his ministry, planting churches, seeing miraculous things happen, getting beat for his faith and getting back up and going back in the city to preach the gospel, he even said, I'm pressing on to make it my own. But what is my goal? What is my motivation? Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has made me his own. Jesus has made you his own if you have trusted in him. The world offers empty cups. The world offers lots of empty cups. Only Christians can experience true satisfaction. 
Because Jesus says in John 4, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus said in John 6, to them he said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you aren't satisfied, ask what you're hungering for. But if you find yourself hungering, there's one place to go. And it's abiding in Christ. It's delighting in him. It's delighting in the work that he did. And our delight in experiencing satisfaction in him, we we can have satisfaction in him and still experience trial. In fact, some of the godliest people that I have met in my life, both in our nation and other places, they often are experiencing some kind of trial perpetually, whether it's because they're imprisoned or other things that they have. But why is it they're so godly? Why is it they experience joy? Why is it that they're satisfied and not just grumpy and crotchety? Because they know where they're going to get real satisfaction, and they're experiencing it now in this life. So even as we experience satisfaction, it doesn't guarantee we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that those things won't go away. It could mean that in your life, you will continue to experience hardship and struggle. But that doesn't mean you can't experience satisfaction. It doesn't mean you can't experience joy. In fact, I think the opposite. We can experience it in the midst of suffering. Because when we hunger and thirst, we're hungering for a kingdom that's going to be perfect and ruled by a perfect king. So yeah, let's, let us avoid the things that lead us into unrighteousness. Let us avoid the things that would deaden our senses, and let's just keep before us the king. How do we keep before us the king? Because that's going to be what is going to remind us the taste. Because we, when we move that in front of us, we start to get distracted by lesser things that seem to satisfy us, but we know they really don't. Keeping your gaze in front of God's word in some way, shape, or form on a regular basis, on a daily basis, causes you to align your heart towards the kingdom, to point your heart towards the kingdom because you're learning about the king. If you don't know where to start, start in the book of Matthew. Start in the gospel of John. If you just want to get to know Jesus, just slowly read through the gospel of John. Being present with the saints in your small groups, and here's where we direct our gaze afresh to the king. But as we direct our gaze, as we taste, we hear the truth, and we, oh, that satisfies. It satisfies because Jesus promised that it satisfies. There's a guarantee. If you want to be satisfied, hunger and thirst for him. And as you hunger and thirst for him, freshly be aware it's only by his mercy that you can. If you're like, I want to hunger and thirst for him, but I keep being distracted, that means God's at work in you because you're hungering. He doesn't say, do this perfectly and you'll be satisfied. No, he says, hunger. So if there's that longing in there, he will satisfy you. But I want to end with this. I want to end with a a verse from an old hymn called a debtor to mercy. 
that says this, a debtor to mercy alone. Of covenant mercy I sing. I come with your righteousness on. You're not having to put on your righteousness as you hunger and thirst for it to get a blessing. No, you come with his righteousness on. My humble offering to bring the judgments of your holy law with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. So we end where we began. Actually, before we open the text as we were singing, it's not about what we have to do to earn a blessing. We get this blessing because of what Jesus has done. And even as you leave here today and you see that snow outside, let it remind you that the blood of Jesus has washed your sin whiter than snow, even the ones that you're struggling right now with as you're hungry and thirsting for righteousness. And know this, you will be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, the temptation for us right now, as is the temptation for me, is to feel that we fall short. Is to be left with that gap. And I ask God that you would help us to actually embrace that reality, that we do fall short. But to know that because we acknowledge that reality, your son's blood speaks a better word than the old sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament, that we are washed clean, that acknowledging that deficiency leads us to the place of his sufficiency. So lead us there this morning and put us in awe afresh of the one to whom we should look. And I ask God that we would have such a gaze of him that the things of this world would grow strangely dim and that we would hunger more for him, that we would hunger to align our lives more with his character to bring glory to his name. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.